Welcome to another episode of the History of Networking on the Network Collective. Today, we're going to be talking about the standardization of the description and communication of policy in the internet. Tonight on the History of Networking, we have Joel Halpern, who is quite famous in the realms of the IETF and other standards organizations. He's probably going to disagree with me, but that's okay. Joel, how are you tonight? And talk to us about policy in the internet. Thank you. I'm doing fairly well. Um, I've been involved one way or another. In your hotel (laughs) conference room, whatever the case might be. I've been working with routers in one way or another and networking for a long time. I started building IP routers when I was with network systems back in the late 80s. We were competing with Cisco. So I've been around this business a long time. I was routing area director at the IETF in 1994. Policy actually predates my involvement with networking because policy starts from outside of networking. I mean, I was reading a research piece on network policy that pointed out that originally it was security policy for hosts that they started out trying to work out policy. And you frequently find people thinking about policy first and foremost about security, but it's a lot more than that. And when those hosts, I mean, Joel, if we didn't have hosts connected to our networks, our jobs would be a lot easier. Wouldn't it though? So (laughs) policy has been talked about for networking for a long time. I mean, back when there was one of the things about BGP even, which Russ, you know very well, is that part of the reason it's structured the way it is, is to allow individual domains to apply their own policies for route selection because different autonomous systems have different preferences as to where things go and We didn't want to try to express it, even if folks were willing to communicate it, which they often aren't. So that's, I mean, policy as a whole and policy as it affects networking and routing goes back a long ways. The, it got sort of hidden under network management for a long time. SNMP and CMIP were just, this is how you manage the network. And if you have policy, you express it by how you manage the network. Well, That's a crude hammer, but it's better than no hammer at all. So then... That sounds familiar. Yeah. (laughs) It it, it sounds like most tools in networking. That's a crude (laughs) hammer, but it's better than no hammer at all. I would have to agree with you. (laughs) Things got a little more interesting when we did RSVP, which was for resource reservation and was actually intended originally for end-to-end resource reservation across the network. One of the obvious observations was, wait, I'm going to give you better quality and I'm going to reserve bandwidth for you. I, as an operator, probably have some policy like, did you pay me to do this? And you needed some way to say that. And there was a working group called RAP that was created. And as far as I can find from the records, it was created in 1997. And they produced a protocol called COPS which is actually RFC 2748 in 2000. The interesting thing is COPS itself is completely unused. I mean, the working group went on through 2005. It did lots of things, but nobody uses COPS. It was a protocol for sending policy requests and policy responses back and forth. So you'd have the router would get an RSVP request. It would send somebody a request that would say, Am I allowed to do this? And it would get back an answer. The interesting thing there that is still used, and the reason why it still matters in, in terms of thinking, is that they created the terms for policy decision point and policy enforcement point. And those terms are still used very widely in people's discussions. So, so RSVP has the same sort of problem, right? It was originally designed to do one thing, and it ended up mostly being used for something else, right? Which is um, LDP or describing, um, uh, you know, the uh, label switch paths through networks. RSVPTE, which is the same underlying protocol, is what's used for, for doing LSP. resource reservation for LDP. Right. Um, segment routing is now the alternative. Do all the analysis up in the core and just... Put, create the path where you want it. But the basic idea of doing resource reservation highlighted the need to apply policy to whether you wanted to permit them. Because what if you have more requests than you can handle? Do you kick somebody out? Do you refuse the new request? 
that becomes policy because what policy actually is, is all about expressing business intent so that the network does not just something, but what you want. Intent-based networking. There you go, Jordan. Uh, I know. I mean, I mean, <laughs> everyone's trying to tell me that this is something that's been invented in the past. I don't know what, well, like six months. You're telling me intent-based networks been around a lot longer than that. <laughs> in fact, if we talk about networking in terms of doing what the operator wants, that's what we've been trying to find ways to do for God knows how long. And the term intent-based networking is used for way too many things and used for way too many things in the policy management space. People <laughs> take whatever it is they're doing and call it intent-based networking. I still think CLI is intent-based networking as well. Sure. We're, not, we're, not, we're not actually making the machine do the things. We're telling it what we want it to do and then tell that's it to right. go do it. But and, and, yeah, that's, that's, all, that's a whole other show. Well, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Well, we'll come back to that a little bit, a little later, <laughs> okay. because when we finally get to the math work that I'm currently involved in, we've actually tried to write down a definition of intent to distinguish it so that we can say, this is what we mean when we say these are intent-based policies. Sure. <laughs> because saying it without a definition, which everybody wants to do, doesn't say anything. It doesn't sell anything when you have a definition, though. So, well, in, these yeah, early days, <laughs> so in these early days, we're talking about IETF work, right? Because you yeah. said NAF, and I just want to get people, listeners, to realize that we're talking about. Most of the work we're talking about here is IETF. Recently, it has spawned work all over the world, all over the place. ONF, TMF, you name it, everybody is doing policies. But for the longest time, in terms of networking, the only policy work going on was in the IETF. So in fact, the next piece after the COPS work, I mean, I wasn't involved in COPS, so I'm not gonna talk a lot about that, but I can talk about the next one. There was a policy framework working group chartered in the operations and management area. Uh, Bert Vinen was the AD, so it was probably considered a management group. And they had been, they'd got chartered in 1998, and a little bit thereafter, probably about 99, I can't find the exact date, they realized they had gotten themselves into an interesting problem. They had two very skilled co-chairs, and one of those co-chairs was the co-author on every single document. Well, for lots of reasons, that doesn't work very well. So I was asked to step in and co-chair that working group, which I did. And that working group attempted to provide general descriptions of the networking things, the things we manipulate so that you could apply policy to them. So it laid out a framework for a policy called Policy Framework, RFC 3060. And then it laid out RFCs for details of the models to be manipulated. And actually you'll find even now, uh, even in the super work we were doing up until last year, you have the general components for describing policies, and then you drive that down, if you're using good modeling, you drive it through subclassing, down to the things you need for the specific domain you're trying to apply policy to. Because there were no good models even for how do we talk about policies in the networking space? And so piece, the policy core information model 3060 was the first effort to do that. And we so when, you say, when you say a model, try to describe a little bit about what you're talking about, because I, I know there's a lot of people out there who are probably thinking, I know what a CLI is, but I don't know what a model, which when you say model, what's the context for these people? Okay. So the idea is assume that you're not writing necessarily an SNMP and not even necessarily in Yang, but because Yang can be thought of as a data model. You want to have a vocabulary of things you are talking about. So, so a dictionary or an encyclopedia. Well, no, it's more than a dictionary. It's, it's, so we actually have a dictionary, 3198, that's terminology. But okay. you need to introduce what is a rule? Are rules nested? Do they have decision strategies? Do, do things have roles? So one of the common tools that people have found is very useful in laying out policies is to assign roles to entities and then write policy about things according to their role. So you can talk about edge devices. Being an edge device is a role. Now, in fact, it's being an edge interface that's probably a role. But you, you, talk, you can talk about both of those things. 
And so you then, in your network, you simply attach the roles and then your policy can talk about roles. So your information model talks about things like, what does a rule look like? What does a role look like? How do I even represent variables and values in my conditions so I can represent policies? All of these structures and their relationships, how they are related to each other, become a model. So PSIM has a set of abstract classes, policy set, policy group, policy rule, simple policy condition. There's more, I'm not gonna read them all. That, and subclasses thereof that create a structured representation of information that you can use in any sort of programmatic manipulation. So you know how to represent a policy because these are the pieces that you represent. Actually, the, the, so the ones I'm talking about are from the, actually from RFC 3460, the extension to 3060, because you need both to do anything useful. So the, the examples I was giving were, were basically in 3460. 3060 just started with just the notion of policy group and policy rule and a few simpler things. But 3460 adds a lot of those structures and their relationships. Because so finding not, things is all about defining the relationships among them. So the problem you're trying to solve here is you're trying to solve for a provider. This all starts with RSVP and the provider getting these resource reservation requests and the provider has to figure out, do I accept them or reject them? So now you need a set of policies for each role within the network that says, all right, in this role, it has such, such amount, whatever, and it can accept it or reject it. Is that the right path or is it slightly different? It's the right path, but not specific to RSVP. By the time we were doing policy framework, we concluded RSVP is interesting, but that's not the real question. Okay. So it's much more in support of DiffServ. Okay. Because DiffServ is what people actually need it. And that's, and so there's rules for, you could, you could imagine policies for how you classify traffic into DiffServ and policies for how you treat traffic based on its DiffServe markings and all of those sorts of things. And policies, and the policy stuff is not restricted to just queues and interfaces. Policies about which routes to select, policies to set the priorities of the different routing protocols as to which one should have preference. These, some of these are things you do in CLI, but really CLI is the expression of the decision. What you want to do is express it as policy. So, so, so back up for one second, though, is DiffServe, you said DiffServe, and again, I'm not sure everybody's going to know what DiffServe means. Can you just explain real fast? Sure. So RSVP had a fundamental problem that it created state in every router in, along its path for every flow. Okay. That's very precise, but very expensive. So DiffServe said, you know, mostly all we need to know is this is important traffic, this is unimportant traffic, this is all the traffic that must be given as low latency as possible. And as long as we know that about the packets, all the intermediate routers can do their thing just based on that much marking. So okay. we took six bits from the existing IP header that were the, the TOS bits and said, we're gonna define them as diff serve. This was done in the transport area in IETF. I was active in there. I led one of the design teams for one of them. And basically what it does is at the edge of your domain, you mark packets as to what kind of service they're supposed to get according to a very coarse marking. And then at each router, you use that simple marking to determine how you queue it and what the queuing properties are. Okay. And this turns out to be quite sufficient to let you get what you need. Okay, good, cool, thanks. So continue, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, I was just trying to back up and make sure everybody understands what the DiffServe story was there. So one of the important models we built in the policy framework work was RFC 3644, the policy QoS model, which was specifically for configuring this sort of thing. How do you configure the queues, et cetera? Now, I'll point out something. We did this and people do look at it. And I've seen people referencing 30, 3060 and 3460 recently, but it the state of the art has moved on a lot and there turn out to be a lot of weaknesses in those models. Because we published those in the early 2000s. And 
we really didn't know as much as we thought about the problem and how to address the problem and so forth. So can you describe some of that, like some of the different things you discovered that, that show that the model is weak? Just to, It's know, very to... hard. I, I, I haven't gone back and looked at it, but the fundamental aspect is it turns out we, because of the modeling assumptions we made, we ended up with a lot more detailed classes than we, than we really want, which makes it hard to use. Uh, and okay. it's hard to extend. Adding things for the different things you need to do turned out to be harder and more interdependent than it should be if you want to build a general base for doing policy work. And trying to represent it because it was, it thought we were still thinking in terms of network management. So it was very much an event condition action kind of model. And we hadn't even articulated event condition action well. We didn't really have a good model of what would be the triggers for policy if you were stepping outside of COPS. COPS had a clear trigger, the RSVP request. But DiffServe doesn't, and a lot of other things you do don't have clear triggers. And if you're trying to have policy for how you respond to failures in your network, the failure is the trigger, but now you're responding to every network management event in the world, you somehow have to get a handle on this. So it was a good start, but very limited. Now, the nice thing is, there's one other piece I will talk about that was another effort to bring this into, into fruition because nobody actually built any systems that mapped any of those RFCs into running systems in spite of all the work we put into them. So that tells us something. But one thing I want to point out early is because we did this work and the SNMP conf work, really because we did the policy framework work, Researchers and academics started actually looking at what does it take to really do this? What does it even mean? And as a result, a bunch of research got done, papers got written, and we learned more, and we know more about how to do it now. And it's, I, I mean, typically, as is typical, you don't implement what the researcher builds. The researcher builds interesting things because they work great to show something for a thesis but they do tell you things which let you build better results. So when we get to the more modern aspects of all of this, that's all informed by research work that folks like John Strassner and Sven Vandermeer did at universities and which then came back into industry. So I, so I always thought 50% of building a research paper was finding a, a novel name for the protocol or the system that you've designed to illustrate the point you're making in the research paper. Much like, much like building a new IETF working group, the biggest argument and free range routing, right, Donald? The biggest argument oh turned out to be made. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you call it? <laughs> uh, yeah, but at least with good competent researchers, you do get interesting results as well. And I'm not going to speculate on the proportions required to make to get there. So <laughs> I don't know. How long did Radia say she took to, to write the spanning tree? Like three days? It was it was two days. She spent three days on the poem. That's right. Two right. That was two days to write the protocol. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think she had the I think she had the proportions right there. <laughs> well, the other thing is. A lot of what you do, if you, well, a lot of this stuff is driven by whether you understand the problem or not. And Radia understood the problem she was solving. So writing the protocol to do it wasn't hard for her. <laughs> but in a lot man, of these cases. Man, that's a statement right there. I mean, isn't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that right? life? I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, if you really, truly understand the problem, designing something to solve the issue really isn't the challenge. Most of our challenge comes from the fact that we just don't even know what we're trying to solve for. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And there's still a debate about whether we're doing the policy work to solve the right problems. That's part of what the whole use of the word intent is about is what problem are we trying to solve? Who are we trying to make this usable by and to achieve what goals? But that's why I said it's about achieving the business goals, which means you have to figure out ways to let business people express what they mean because otherwise you can't do it. (laughs) Now, for a long time, we've had to do human mediation of those human expressed needs because frankly, the, techno- the other technologies, not the policy technologies, but a lot of the 
other technologies. We're not up there. I mean, right now in some of the work we're doing, John's putting together some domain-specific John. languages. John Strassner in the MEF work is putting together some domain-specific languages. And it's taken a couple of months, but that's all because he's using available tools like Antler and available experience with building this stuff. Trying to do that in 2001, and we'd have been tearing our hair out. So we've learned a lot of things, and the technology's gotten better. And frankly, there's more compute to throw at a problem. It's an awful That's lot of things where having more compute makes everything easier. At, at least until Spectre. Well, that's a different <laughs> problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay. So let's go back to you. You're in the 2000 time frame right now. Right and we're now. still talking yeah. about cops and, and the post-cops well, world. Yeah, and so we're talking about the cops continued, but really the interesting work branched off from COPS because we weren't focused on RSVP. And we first did the policy framework. And then a little later, Bert said, but, but we need to do this in SNMP. Uh, no, you don't. Well, <laughs> at the time, we thought we did. And there's an important lesson in the effort we put in. So we, there was a working group created called SNMP Conf. And a bunch of us went off and tried to figure out how do we represent policy conditions, policy actions, in SNMP. I'm and sorry. We, <laughs> we <I> managed mean, <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, this doesn't sound like a good time. <laughs> well, if you enjoy seeing how complicated a mess you can make, it was a good time. Well, because, yeah, I guess if, if you're looking for total destruction, sure. <laughs> the, real, the real lesson in things like RFC 3512 and 3747 is trying to represent all of the complexities in, of policy this way is a nightmare. And so I see folks trying to represent all of this again in Yang, directly in Yang filters, and I'm going, you know it's going to hurt when you do that. <laughs> and this is one of my points. When you have a complex problem that you're trying to represent, Representing it in a language like SNMP or even Yang, well, you may need to render it in that for various purposes. Working in those languages makes it very hard. That's what information modeling is for. Represent what your constructs are, how they're related, what do you need, and then worry about rendering it into whatever data modeling language you need to communicate it. You do need to communicate policies. This is one of the interesting things is there are at least two or three different ways we have realized we need to communicate policies. And I want to come back to that in just a minute. But the point was trying to say, I'm going to express all of the policy in SNMP because my network elements are going to perform all of the policy work has two basic flaws. One, SNMP or even Yang isn't well suited to it. And two, you don't have enough information at the network element to do all of the, what policy needs to do. So you want to figure out a way to talk about all of policy in some higher level systems and then move, that, move the relevant pieces, the stuff that an individual network element can work on down to the network element. So, so is this going to be similar to for Donald? I'll jump to Donald here for a second. Is this going to be similar to like building a UML model of a system and trying to understand the intent of each particular piece and then converting those into APIs? Is that that's, the kind of thing? That's the kind of thing we're talking about, yes. Okay. So okay. the super policy work we did in UML. Okay. We rendered it into Yang, but we did the work in UML because I can look at and build a set of constructs that represent information, have associations. I can represent the difference between an association, an aggregation, a composition, and subclassing. And yes, I use subclassing, it's valuable. And actually association classes, which is very powerful. And then we can render it as we need it. And yeah, there's some loss of information in the rendering, although we found some techniques, so we lose less information than we had feared we would. But the idea is first figure out what you need to represent. And one of the reasons for that is one of the things we've learned over the years in dealing with policy is there are really several higher level policy things that you need to have. You've got policy authoring and editing systems. You're going to have policy repositories and you're going to have policy engines. 
all of which are outside of classic network elements. And you might use Yang among them, but probably not. <laughs> and so what you want to do is define the things to manipulate and then figure out how you want to store them, figure out how you want to communicate them. What's the right data language to use to communicate these policies between an authoring system and an engine? And the corollary, the reason why I do this work in the standards bodies is I want to be able to use policy authoring from one person, repositories from a different vendor, and engines from a different vendor, and have them work together. Right. So, so, what, so one actual takeaway from thinking about this from a history perspective and what lessons have been learned over the years might be that if you want to talk to a manager, people ask me sometimes, why do you bother learning UML? Why do you bother learning these modeling languages and this type of stuff? And to me, one of the answers is because if I'm talking to a manager about a business process, a business person about a business process, then I, if I can describe that process in UML on a whiteboard, then I can actually convert it into a set of intentions and relationships that allow me to then think about how would I implement this in real life. And I think that's a, that's a crucial thing that we've tried to do that with SNMP in the past. And we've tried to do that. We're trying to kind of do that with Yang and intent-based networking today. Can I say that, Jordan? Is that allowed? Anyway, <laughs> and, and all of this other stuff. And we actually have tried to do it with CLI, right? Yep. But in the long run, it seems like the best thing to do is to go back and model it as a model using something like UML and then work from there and yeah. understand how to move between these things. That way I can work out how policy works without getting into an argument about whether I'm going to use Tosca to communicate it, Yang to communicate it, or Java RMI. We can render it in the systems using the tools that are appropriate to the system and to the people building the system because most of the time that kind of tool choice is more about what do my people actually use well than it is about what, what, what data modeling language is perfect? None of them are. Yeah, yeah. Like so that network I worked on that time that they were switching from OSPF to ISIS because they were taking their CCIEs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that one was better than the other. It's that this is what I want to do. So, it's not, so the point is we did up through 2005 a bunch of these efforts directly modeling languages. We tried to do the policy framework stuff and information modeling. Note there was no such thing as UML yet. They were just, the gang of four had started on some of their paradigms and were starting the work that led to UML. Gang of four? I don't remember the names of the, of the, of the guys who, who did the core work that led to UML. It's actually the mob of four, but. <laughs> <laughs> There's different ways, but the point is, Four really sharp guys came up with the abstractions that lead to UML, UML1, UML2, what is now UML2.5, which is actually pretty dang precise and useful. But we, when we were doing this work, we didn't know about any of that. I mean, I, in 2000, when I was doing this, I was also doing some UML, but the ITF wasn't using UML. Mm -hmm. And UML was very informal. The, the graphics were, well, whatever your particular tool wanted to do. It's, I've been thinking about it, I now realize, yes, in 99, 2000, I knew people were using UML, it existed. But it wasn't very crisp and it had a long way to go. We've, that's another dimension where we've learned a lot and so the better tools let us say a lot more. And that's helpful in writing down what the models are. So from 2005 to about 2000, uh, I don't know what year, the telemanagement forum started really looking at policy, but 2010, 2012, somewhere in there, this stuff all moved off to academia. But then it started coming back in different places. Uh, the DMTF had been there a long time, the desktop management forum, but they didn't really pull together anything in that period. Well, they're more focused on the edge devices anyway, right? Like right. the hosts and stuff like that. So it's difficult for them to put an end-to-end -end picture together because they don't have the networking side that the ITF does. So the ITF is focusing on network devices, you yep. know, and the MTF is... And they had tried to collaborate with us on the policy framework work, and there are some commonalities, but it, a lot of work had to be done. And then various groups started trying to do policy. 
Um, depending on the year you look at it, the ONF developed some policy stuff. ODL developed some policy stuff a little later, which was either called intent-based policy or group-based policy. Then they developed another policy activity. Meanwhile, the TMF had their policy activities because they did understand correctly that managing networks was all about applying policy, but trying to translate the stuff didn't work. Um, OpenStack had OpenStack Congress for applying policy to clouds as we started moving down these various paths. So, so this is kind of tangled a little bit with the, with the origins of OpenFlow, I think, from what I remember, that one of the problems they were trying to solve when doing OpenFlow was this concept of how to do better policy um, through a controller type of situation rather than... So that what the sense in which it entangles is that if your policy is about packet handling, they were trying to simplify and generalize the expression of packet handling behavior. Right, exactly. And that's driven by what is your policy about packets. A lot of their driver was the theory that there would be a lot of different kinds of packets. And there are some kinds, but the number, it does, it's not like there's a new protocol every six months at the network layer. Yeah, there are new ones, but it's, how long did it even take us to get beer through it? It's, it yeah. takes a long time. So you don't, right. it's not really a driver from an operational perspective, but their conceptual driver was to be able to apply policy and apply behavior to any and all packet headers. They did it by creating a conceptual model in which all of packet forwarding is a TCAM. Right. Yeah. Which does make it easy to express what you want. The world is not a TCAM. <laughs> and in particular, the world is not a stateless TCAM. <laughs> I think we need shirts. Yes. <laughs> the world yes. is not a TCAM. Yes. I, I think most people were like, what is that? When they saw that shirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's part of the allure, right? <laughs> so, yes, Paula, and that's why. They, after, after getting the base OpenFlow protocol stuff done, they did start trying to get into policy about it because they, that was, you, if you don't have any policies that are active, then you don't need most of the complexity of these controllers. Right. You just forward the dang packets and you're done. Right. But if exactly. you have policy about behavior, then you need it, but then you need to somehow ex be able to communicate the policies. Right. Express it and carry it. Yeah. Right. And of course, the different things that there's the cord stuff and Ono stuff and ODL, which ODL is built all around Yang as a method of representing everything in sight, which turned out to be a better, a better choice than I would have expected. It works for them. But then you get bolting on group-based policy and a different intent policy, and it gets interesting. And one of the, one of the problems is, so if you have a policy – how do you cause whatever processing path in the network, in, in the controller even, or in the routing processing, what, what that processing path has to somehow take into account this policy that you've got. And well, you can try to guess the insertion points for policy and say, okay, I'm going to define that the entity that is at that particular spot will check with policy. But then it has to check with policy all the time. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around is, you know, uh, I, I understand the value in modeling and, and having a common language for, you know, is, uh, both establishing and instantiating policy. But there's a, there's a practical, you know, if we check on every single new flow, is it every single new packet? Is it every, you know, is it, is it, you know, batch? Like how often are we doing this, these policy checks? And the other thing that comes to mind is that, you know, in this, you talk specifically in and around DiffServe and, and, and the details around that, but yet every single device seems to have a different amount or different quality or different, different capacity as to what it can do there. And so, you know, handling the variables just seems like uh, just an immense, like almost unsolvable level of complexity to set up in a, in, in a modeling language. It may still turn out to be impossible, I will grant you. Okay. But we got to try. Now, oh, I, I, don't, I don't disagree. I'm not trying to, well, to say it's not worth reason, it. <laughs> one of the reasons the MEF has a hope of achieving it for their space is that they define a set of services and a set of, the, of interesting attributes for services, relevant attributes, 
So if you have policy about those services, you have a set of common things to talk about. So what is the MEF, Metro Ethernet Forum? It used uh, to be called the Metro Ethernet Forum. Right. So, so, it's now so, called the MEF Forum. Okay. <laughs> Just, oh, it's one of those. It's one of those. The yeah. MEF Forum? Yes. <laughs> I screamed okay. when I first saw that, but oh, I was told too bad. So, so, so what do they do that's different than the ITF, I mean, or the IEEE or anything like that? Okay, uh, so since I keep talking about them, let's take the digression, because I'm doing a lot of the policy work over there right now due to the IETF having killed it, which is a different thing that I do want to get to because I think listeners need to understand that. But the Metro Ethernet Forum started out defining Ethernet services, not how do you do Ethernet pseudo-wires, but how, what is a consistent way for operators to offer services for customers? And so they created a set of terminology for that and a set of behaviors and a set of externally visible parameters. Didn't matter what the underlying device's parameters were, that was up to the operator to do. They've done two things that make them much more interesting after that. Because if that was all they did, fine, go do. But first, they have extended the set of services they're defining. So they're actually defining IP services and optical services, as well as Ethernet services. So the services that can be offered to a customer across the range of interesting spaces, including VPNs and Internet access, are things they're defining in terms of externally visible attributes. So that gives us something to talk about. The other thing they've done is they've created a model for lifecycle service orchestration. This is known as MEF55 after the document number for, for what defines it. And it talks about the interaction between customer, service provider, and partners, and the layers of business, uh, business operations, orchestration and service management, and network management. And so network management itself down at the bottom is abstracted in what they call ICM, uh, interface control management, but that's the bottom of the list. It's these other interfaces that then create things which are performing operations about which you have policy and for which you end up wanting to translate into actions down on the ICM, on Yang or whatever else you're doing to manage the network. So this creates a place to talk about policy management, its interaction with business, its interaction with service catalogs, the interaction with partners as well as the interaction with customers. So you have an environment in which you can actually talk about the policies for delivering services. Interesting. Okay. So that's what MEF is up to today. Yeah. Which is why they're now MEF Forum instead of the Metro Ethernet Forum. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> and it's why I care because while IEEE <laughs> and Ethernet are really neat things and I have lots of colleagues who do wonderful things there, not my, bail, not my choice of places to play. Okay, so tell us about policy in the IETF and why it was shut down, because you said you wanted to talk about that along so the way. folks came to the IETF and said, okay, everybody says policy matters. Can we work on this in terms of how do we represent policy for use in the IETF? And we wrote that the charter that was written specifically said that this can be used either to talk to intermediate entities, policy managers, or end devices. So you didn't have to talk, decide, this is only for policies which an end device can do, in which case we have to would have to define what is an end device, what can it do? I don't have to get into that fight. It's representing policy and, re and what can it do? Now, we started that debate with recognizing there were two different kinds of policies. Classic network management policy is what's called ECA policy, event, condition, action. Something happened generally in the network, but it could be time of day change. Something happens. You look at your environment and see if that change is relevant. And then you decide if it's relevant, what do you need to do in response to that change? ECA. That fits nicely in the, into the network management view of the world. It is, however, challenging to write policies in that regard for general cases, because if my goal is to give this customer a certain amount of bandwidth and a certain kind of priority over other people, uh, as John likes to put it, John gets gold service. Well, 
what I want to do is define the behaviors of gold service and ask the network to tell me if it violates that, not try to enumerate all the conditions that could occur somewhere in the network which might affect it and figure out for each one exactly how I have to respond. Hey, I've got a lot smarter machines nowadays. So that's how you move from ECA policy to intent-based policy. And we had the discussion, the IETF agreed to charter the working group but with the focus on ECA policy. Okay, we undertook to do the work with the understanding that we would build the top level things, the entities that talk about representing policies in ways that were suitable for both, but we wouldn't get into how do you model intent-based policies. Okay. And yeah, it took a little longer than we like. The working group was chartered in October of 2015. Welcome to the ITF. Right. Welcome to the ITF. Things (laughs) take longer. And then in April of 2017, some 18 months later, the AD said, you haven't delivered. Your milestones say you should deliver. Nobody's using this. Our charter said specifically, we will not ask anybody to use it until we've made enough progress to think we have a stable structure. Uh, so running so running code didn't exist, so therefore running code in rough consensus and uh, the AD yep. shut it down. The AD shut it down. Interesting. Now, one of the things that I believe contributed to this was we did all of the modeling work in UML. And then we rendered that UML into Yang. But we said, if you want to discuss the model, we strongly recommend you discuss the UML because there we can talk about the relationships between the classes, the attributes of the classes, the cardinalities of the classes, all of the things you care about, the semantics of the classes. And then we can worry about whether the Yang represents what we want once we know what we want. Now, I am told that some of the Yang folks are starting to understand why I did some really weird things in building the Yang. The Yang that we ended up with for this has a sea of top-level containers. Because what I did was create the inheritance tree as groupings, with each grouping using a parent grouping and a set of identities inheriting. Identities in Yang can inherit. That's helpful. And so then each time I define a grouping, I say it uses something and it, has a, it, ha, it overrides the field that says, what am I with the correct value of the identity for the class? Okay. So when you're pointing at one of these, you can ask, what kind of a thing are you? And when you have an association, you can write a must clause on the association that says, it must point at this place in the hierarchy because there's a field to look at. So that you can actually represent the restrictions on associations. And we actually did association classes as well. This means all of the structure is in the groupings. And if you look at the Yang tree, which Yang purists say, that's where everything lives. All you see is what the, is what the, the concrete classes are. You won't see any of the abstract classes and you won't see any of the relationships. You just see this set of containers. It's an unusual way to build Yang, but it turns out if you're really trying to work in UML and object-oriented modeling, it gives you modeling that works that is Yang compliant. So, so when the ITF shut it down, you moved to the MEF forum. Yep. The MEF forum, Jordan. MEF forum. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and so where is, the, where is the work today? He's just going to drop off the Zoom yeah. now. <laughs> we, we rage quit the last VoIP issue, uh, voice um, episode as well, right? We started yeah. talking about facts again. I was like, I'm done. So we're almost there, just to let you know. <laughs> hey, Russ, let the men participate. As long as we don't talk about facts, we're okay. <laughs> so, so, what hap- so what we did was there is a, there is a work item chartered in the MEF called policy-driven orchestration. So the focus is how are we going to orchestrate the policies in what's called the surface orchestrator function. But that lets us also talk about the interface to the business systems and the interface to other customers and to customers and partners and all of that. One of the things we've done in that is to spell out definitions of intent declarative and, pol- and ECA policy. 
we did ACA is the classic event condition action. Declarative policy is formal logic description. You use first order logic to state the invariance the system should have and then invoke repair when it doesn't have it. You specify what kind of fixes you need to, to achieve, but you don't say what conditions are violated. So the repairs themselves often look at various states in the network to figure out how, but it's first order logic about the state of the network that drives it, not I respond to this event or that event or the other event. It's only one problem with that. Somebody like me loves it, but a business guy or even most programmers look at that and say, I can't read this. <coughs> Donald, he's talking about you and you, you're muted, man. Yeah, I'm muted. I'm sorry, nor do they want to learn how to read it. <laughs> right. They glaze over. You start talking about that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, functional languages are hard enough and first order logic is a step beyond. So intent-based language is a way of expressing the intention about the network, the goal that you can represent in first order logic. So it's state oriented rather than change oriented, but it's human language based. <coughs> so John's actually writing domain specific languages for how are we going to express these kinds of invariants. He's actually writing one for ECA first, just so we can start testing things because that's much easier because getting a good domain-specific language for intent to drive declarative policy is going to be a bit challenging, but it's what we need because you can't ask a business guy to write logic invariance. It doesn't work. And the whole point is to be able to let the business guy say, what is he trying to offer? What properties of his network are important for his business? Cool. And yes, systems analysis and network design guys will also write policies about what they want. <coughs> As an example of the difference, if your goal is to move load around so that nothing is loaded more than 70% in a cloud, you can write that as a declarative statement. You can't write that in, a, in event condition logic. If X said, if this is an alarm for greater than 70%, well, it may not even generate an alarm. And as you generalize what kinds of things you want to hold, it becomes even harder. So what you want to do is describe the state you want to maintain and then have the system figure out what should be monitored, what analytics may need to be applied to, to do that. That's the analytics system. And then send the, the fact that it's no longer true to the policy system and say, now, repair. <laughs> So interesting. So we started out basically with RSVP and trying to express even prior to RSVP and trying to express like what a customer wants to do and how to override that in the provider or how to give certain things out. And now we've moved into basically what is intent. So um, actually we're like 47 minutes. So maybe we should like wrap up a little bit and uh, this is kind of where we are today, right? Yep. Joel, is, this is where we are today. So we've kind of moved from the past to the current. So the point, so what we're doing now is trying to take those same models we developed in the IETF, enhance them to be able to represent intent policies as well as ECA policies, and then add the subclassing necessary to manipulate the meth things, the things that the services the meth is interested in, and also offer this then as a basis for applying policy to whatever domain you need. So ONAP, for example, the open source uh, at CNFV and AT&T and China Telecom based yeah. orchestration environment currently has three different policy engines and three different policy representations. With, with luck, we can build the, bring this common policy architecture forward so that there's one policy because the problem is that real world problems don't tend to silo very well. So if you have one policy engine that's concerned with cloud uh, virtual machines and containers, and one that's concerned with your network, and one that's concerned with your customer relationships, well, that's great, but when something goes wrong, it affects all three. So right. you really want to have a common vocabulary, as you alluded to earlier, 
often called an ontology, on a common set of manipulable things, the object, the information model that can drive that. So that if the cloud thing says network interface and the network thing says network interface, they're actually talking about the same kind of a beast. Uh, yeah. yeah, cool. So it's interesting that this all started with a very simple problem though. And oh yeah. All the way up, we've all moved all the way up to this area realm in here. So um, yeah, so cool. Thanks Joel. And um, you know, I guess we're going to bring you back on for service function chaining. I don't know when. Uh, I don't know when we're going to talk about that. And there was something else, right? Besides yep. service function. Oh, mobility, ILNP. That should be entertaining. That we, I'd be happy to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, my favorite topic, Lisp. <laughs> I, I do have a bit of grounding in both of those. Yes, you do. I know. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Joel. Uh, thanks, Joel, for coming on, and uh, we'll bring you back on in the near future. And Donald, since you're on my right hand side, nobody can see my screen to tell who's where. Right. You're below when, me. Yeah. When when you reference people, it's definitely not the way it comes out in the video. <laughs> yeah, so I lo I love it. Like you know, hey, hey Donald, as I'm looking at somebody, and right now I'm probably looking off the screen. Oh. Yeah. So where, can, <laughs> so where can people find you, Donald? Twitter on Twitter at me not you sharp. And LinkedIn and LinkedIn, yeah. And you can and you're kind of you're kind of in the free range route in GitHub repository every now and again if somebody wants. You can find me there too. You could do, if you really want to make Donald's life very happy, do some really cool, funky code that nobody can understand and do and a PR and submit it. Yeah. And see what, awesome. oh, I've got some time tomorrow. <laughs> you can do that. And Jordan, you're, you're normally at the Network Collective, right? Yeah, I mean, you can find me lots of places. Uh, the Network Collective is where I'm at most of the time. I'm on Twitter at PC Jordo. Uh, and my blog, which I write at occasionally, uh, jordanmartin.net. Cool. And... Joel, where can people find you? The easiest way to reach me is always email, jmh at joelhalpern.com. Um, if you find me on LinkedIn, I'll, I'll respond to messages there. I am there. But I, 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 live on, I live and breathe email. I'm an antique. <laughs> and you can always, if you, don't, if you can't find Joel's email address from, the, uh, from this post or whatever, you can always just go to itf.org and do a search for um, drafts authored by Joel. And you'll find something there with his email, email plastered everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's right. Yeah. And of course, I'm always at rule11.tech and you can often find me on the Network Collective whenever Jordan decides to put up with me. <laughs> Leash is getting short. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, guys. And um, we'll see you on the next History of Networking at the Network Collective. Thanks. Thanks.